Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So at one point or another, all of us have thought about running away, whether from a situation an experience, maybe a person, if you have a toddler in the room, my toddlers have run away from me, right? Or you've thought about running away from home. I did that once. I remember I was real young, and I don't know if it was a phase I was going through. Uh, there was one period of my life where the doctors, medical professionals, they ended up di or giving me uh, adult prescription, and I was taking that, and I got wild and crazy. I don't know what season of my life this was in, but I remember looking at my parents and saying, I'm out of here. I was young, seven, eight. I didn't know where out of here was, right? I was out of here. And so I looked at my parents. I was frustrated. I was upset. It didn't make sense. Some situation, some experience I had with them. And I looked at my mom and I said, I'm packing my bags, right? And she said, go right ahead. And what was funny was this. As I walked into my room, right, if you've ever been here, you walk into your room and you're like, what did I just do? You're like, what, where do I, what bag do I use? What do I pack? Where do I go, right? What's going to happen? Well, I got so frustrated, so mad, you know, I was like, well, I'm going to show them. So I'm like, I'm packing my bag. My mom comes in, starts helping me pack the bag. <laughs> and I was deeply confused. You know, I was like, what is this right here? You know, and all of a sudden, right, it hit, I broke down. It hit me. I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I just was frustrated with my parents or my mom or something like that, right? And I wanted to get out of there. And it doesn't matter if it was an experience, a person, maybe it was a tense moment, uh, a situation, or maybe it was just home. You wanted to run away or get out of a situation at one point or another, and here's the reality. Maybe for some of us here today, we're running from something. Maybe this isn't like a story or a figurative idea. Maybe for some of us, we walk in here today and we're running from something, running from a relationship maybe, running from pain, running from problems, running from history. Maybe we've been running from God and we're re-engaging that conversation, no matter where you're at. I believe today, as we jump into one of the most famous stories that Jesus tells about the prodigal son, he is going to give hope to us. And he's going to give hope to us 
by inviting us home. We're in a series called Prodigal God. It is a five-week series that's going to carry us through Christmas Eve. We are looking at the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, and we're just walking through the story and saying, what is Jesus telling us, and what does that mean for our life? In the midst of this series, we always like to resource you with some things to grab. First is this. On the back wall, you'll see a book. This series is inspired by a book called Prodigal God by Tim Keller. It's like 13 or 14 bucks on Amazon. It'd be worth grabbing. It's a nice, nice quick read. Secondly, we always provide a series guide back on the back wall, and we would invite you to engage with that. Our series guide team does a great job at providing really good resources that connect with where we are going in the series. Our goal is this, is we want you to grow in knowing God's story and knowing your part in God's story. And so that's why we do those series guides and provide those on a series basis. Today, our goal is this, okay? We're going to start dissecting one of the characters inside of this story. If you're here last week, it was very introductory, okay? Today, we're actually going to get into dissecting one of the characters and really getting to the weeds of the story and seeing what's going on. So today, this is what we're going to talk about. The younger son is lost, okay? The younger son is lost, okay? We'll get to what that means and what that looks like. Here's what's interesting, okay? Jesus always had a context to his stories. Jesus always had a context to his stories. And what we looked at last week is this, is we kind of just looked at the surface of the story, the context of the story. And in verse 1 and 2, we see the context kind of come out. It seeps out. This is the audience that Jesus is talking to. Verses 1 and 2, this is where we started last week. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus' context, this is why I said last week, Jesus' context, his audience influenced his characters, and his characters always had meaning to the context. Here's what's interesting is Jesus is not talking to a group of people that are just nodding their heads along with what the teacher is saying, just kind of politely going along with the story. He's talking to a group that are as different as night and day. He's talking over here to those who would be identified as tax collectors and sinners. They're the outcasts of the day. They're the people that pe people were resentful towards. They didn't like. They want to be around. Then you have this group over here, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, those that stood to the law, upheld it. They were the ones that people followed around or at least looked to and said they have it going on. They know what's up. And there's a group of them that kind of compiles around Jesus. Talk about tense. You got this guy who a lot of people are a little iffy on because they're not really sure who he is, talking to two groups that kind of hate each other, but they don't say it. And all of a sudden, the context is set. The audience is set. And what's interesting is this. The sinners or the tax collectors of the day, the outcast, they felt invited in by Jesus and through his stories. Quite the opposite happens with religious leaders. The religious leaders are often offended by Jesus' stories. It's interesting. We said this last week because Jesus' stories, they have a kind of an x-ray vision to them. 
They get to the heart. They don't just show you what's on the outside, but they get to the heart of what is going on in your life. For the religious leaders, that's something they didn't want to get into. And Jesus would often tell stories, not just for entertainment's sake, but to explain reality and to explain some of the deepest questions that you and I have and we wrestle with the realities of life and why things happen and what things are all about. And inside of it, he throws the status quo of, of the day and even of our day upside down. So last week we said this, it's important to understand the context of his stories because we don't understand the context, we don't understand who he's speaking to, what he's speaking about, and how it applies to us. And so we said this, and this would be my encouragement as you read this story. Three things we said last week, find me in the story, not me personally, you. Find yourself. You got to look at and say, where am I in this story? Who do I relate to? Where do I fit in? What am I thinking? Who would I think like? Secondly, find meaning in the story. Jesus doesn't just share stories, like I said, for entertainment's sake, but there is deep meaning behind the stories he shares and what he talks about. And then lastly, we always have to find Jesus in the story. We always have to find Jesus in the story because Jesus is not just pointing to stories he shares to give you good life advice and wisdom, but ultimately he's pointing to stories to tell you who he is and what he's come to do, that he is the savior of the world and he's come to redeem us. We get to find him in the stories to ultimately bring a greater meaning to the gospel inside of our life. Today, today we're going to look at the younger son. The younger son, the story's title is based off the younger son, the story of the prodigal son. And we're going to start in verse 11, and we're just going to walk through his story a little bit, see how it relates to us and where we're at today. Luke 15, verse 11 is where we're going to be. And continuing, Jesus said this, there was a man who had two sons. Now listen, if you're in Luke 15, you'll notice there's two stories above that. Jesus has been sharing stories. This is the third of three stories that have very similar meanings. He's trying to articulate it in multiple different ways to connect with the audience. So he goes to a familia kind of story. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. The first thing I would write down about this story and about the younger son is this, I am lost relationally before legally. I'm lost relationally before legally. And I don't get too tied to those terms because uh, sometimes I have to play with terms a little bit so they sound fancy and stuff, okay? But I'll explain where I'm going with this. Spiritual lostness is defined by relationship, not necessarily by rules. It's important to know. Being spiritually lost is not first a rule-based reality, but first is a relationally-based reality. Here's the reality to my story about packing my bags, okay? Some reason I got frustrated with my parents doing whatever my parents were doing. And I said, I know better than my parents, so I'm going to show them. I'm going to show them I know better. I'm going to go pack my bags. So I turned to mom, mom, I'm going to pack my bags. I'm going to get out of this house. I'm going to live the way I want to live, okay? Joel very quickly realized he didn't know how to live. And so obviously the story ends up, I stayed at home. But what was going on there? What was going on there? It was a relational divide before it was ever a rule divide. 
It wasn't like my parents said, can't leave, can't leave the house, can't move out at eight, right? It wasn't like they had that rule at the house. It was probably assumed that they shouldn't have an eight-year-old move out, right? But it wasn't a rule, it was a relational thing. There was something going on between me and my parents that, that all of a sudden, in my mind, I thought it would be better to be out on my own, to do my own thing, to, to figure it out on my own, to have my own rules and have my own way of living because I, in that situation, am the primary relationship that I have to be worried about and interact with. It's all about me. And inside of this story, and what we'll see is this parallels pretty similarly, at least at the beginning, to the older brother, is that ultimately it's a relational thing. Being lost first starts with relational divide, not rules being broken. And inside of that, we see this story take place. That the father has two sons. The son comes to the father and says, give me the inheritance. And what's interesting is this is Jesus just perfectly does these stories, and he sets us up midway through the story. If you were just to like think of these people as real people who have stories, we're dropping into the middle of it. We're dropping in after years and years of growing up in the house, and, and probably some years to come, right? But the father has two sons, and we don't really know what growing up was like. We don't really know what the relationship was like. We pop halfway into the story, and all that we know is kind of what's going on relationally. It doesn't tell us what the younger son has done. It doesn't tell us what the behavior's been like. It doesn't tell us what the incident's been like. It doesn't tell us any of that. It just tells us relationally what's going on. And what I find interesting is this, is that as it pops us onto the scene, we can kind of note some things. First is this, there's a relational tension going on. The younger son comes to the father and says, I want my inheritance. We'll get to that in a minute. What I also find interesting is this, is the father has two sons, an older and a younger. Just for a second, just put yourself in their seat. Just put it in, in color a little bit because the story, if you just kind of extrapolate it, it has some meaning and it has some color to it. Just imagine your own sibling set. What happens between younger and older siblings sometimes? There's tension. I find it interesting, the dynamics of the younger coming to the father and saying, I want out. What was going on between the siblings? What was going on inside of that family? There's tension happening. But the fact that the younger sibling comes to the father and says, I want my inheritance, tells me two things. It's not on the screen, but it'd be worth writing down. First is this, the younger son is telling his father, I want your stuff without a relationship. I want your stuff without a relationship. Because secondly, what he also is saying is this, he's telling him he'd rather the father be gone, not be a part of his life. Not, not even, even be remotely close to him because I want your stuff, right? What's due to me. Inheritance was a huge thing in that culture, right? But the older sibling, the older brother would get two-thirds and the younger would one-third. The inheritance was a huge thing. And what the younger son is saying, I want your stuff with any form of relationship tied to it. And actually, you can just go. You can just get out of my life. Put yourself in this story. It's, it's, it's not just a story. What would you have done if you were the father? 
We'll get to the Father in a couple weeks, so we're not going to process deeply the Father, but what would you have done? Just sit there for a second. Because I can tell you what I would have done. I'd be like, boy, oh, man, you got your work cut out for you now. You come to me, you ask for the inheritance at this point. This, I'm, not even, I'm not even passed on to the next life, and you want, you want that from me, and then you want to go? Some of us would have been, yeah, right. Some of us would have kicked him out of the house without the inheritance. Some of us would have done chores, right? You're scrubbing the floor with your toothbrush. Some of us would have just hit him and said, knock it off, right? What's interesting is the father's response. Verse 12. This is what it ends as. So he divided his property between them. We'll get to the father, I I promise. In in week four, we're going to dive deep into the father. But the audience would have sat there and been dumbfounded. This would have been the plot twist of all plot twists. They probably would have thought, this is an easy story. Younger brother comes to father, father hits him, tells him to get back to work, and they move on. And for Jesus to say he divided his property among them, they had been like, what are you talking about? This is ridiculous. This is, this is an honor and respect culture that we're talking about. That son doesn't deserve that. That son doesn't deserve to have that inheritance given to him at this point to do whatever he wants with. What is up with the father? What is going on? And we'll get here in week four, but I want you to know this because it tags to the younger brother the father loved the son so much he was willing to bear the burden of despair and continue to love and accept his son he was willing to bear it and cover his son with love in the process it is a profound picture of the father that we will see dovetail at the end of this but let me stop here because for some of us we're already processing where we're at in the story. And for some of us, maybe the question today is, are you the younger brother? Are you the younger brother? Maybe your life or experiences have given to this. Maybe you have run from your own family or run from friendships. Or maybe you have just wanted stuff instead of a relationship. Or maybe let's just take it to a spiritual side. Maybe this has been your relationship with God and Jesus over time. Are you the younger son? You kind of ebb and flow, ebb and flow. And you're here today and you're like, I'm not even sure how to engage God. I'm not even sure where to start with God. Here's the reality with this story. I think at one point or another, we all can, we can, we can all feel and we can all recognize ourselves inside of both the younger and the older brother. I think Jesus masterfully tells this, not in a way that isolates us in a box. Right? Maybe you're more this way than that way, but at one point or another, you have been the younger son. At one point or another, you have been the older son. Are you in a season where that is true, or maybe are you wrestling with the impact that that's made on your life that you haven't fully dealt with yet? Because the younger brother, he didn't want a relationship with the father. He wanted what the father could give him. 
And the question I would ask you is this, are you more worried about what the Father can give you than an actual relationship with the Father himself? The younger brother is more worried about what am I receiving and how is my life going and how can I get ahead than a relationship with the Father himself? Now, let's continue with the story, okay? Because the story is just capturing he continues, Luke does, writing about Jesus' story here. Jesus continues saying this, verse 13, not long after that, okay? So note that, right? Jesus is like, he, he split pretty quick. Got the money, packed his bags, he's out. Younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country. When I'm sharing this with students, shared this story with students before, I'm like, it's Vegas, baby. They get that, right? He set off for Vegas, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. All he had, he spent everything. There was a severe famine in the whole country after he spent everything. And he began to be in need. Here's the reality. When it comes to the younger son and when it comes to maybe identifying with him, the reality about being lost is this. You can be lost in wild living. That is one way to be lost. You can be lost in wild living. The younger son is more defined by immoral living rather than moral legalism. And we'll see the dichotomy between the two sons. That the younger son is more defined by immoral living than moral legalism and honestly can be best described, and Tim Keller describes it as this, as a journey of self-discovery inside of that. This would be someone who's saying, I got to find myself. I got to figure myself out. I want to do what I want to do, live how I want to live, and I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And so the younger son is playing that out to the full, and he has his entire inheritance to explore that. I don't need the father. I have it figured out. So I'm getting out of here because I know what's best for me. And the younger son, he sets off for Vegas, like I said sets off for a distant country where he was able to squander his wealth. He says it spends everything. He spends absolutely everything. From anything and everything, you just let your mind go wild, he spent it on that. He spent it on that. And he was living his best life now, and he was trying to figure out who he was in the process. Have you ever been there? Or maybe wild living has been a part of your story, and you have felt lost in that. Because here's the thing about wild living. Wild living isn't just all of my money is spent. Yes, resources are spent. But what happens to this son is not only are resources spent, but relationships are spent and his resume gets spent. Inside of this story, what we figure out very quickly is this. I don't know how to budget when I'm lost. I don't know how to navigate life when I am lost. When I am lost, I tend to spend everything so that I can figure out how to find myself or how to promote myself or how to do best for myself. And what ends up happening is this. I just get more and more and more and more lost because I'm spending everything on anything for the sake of myself, and it never fulfills. When I'm lost, I don't know how to budget my life. When I'm blind, I don't know how to navigate my life. And maybe you have been there where you have spent everything. 
You spend everything, and it doesn't just have to be money. Maybe it's not been that. Maybe it's been relationships. Maybe it's been your resume. Maybe it's been religion. We'll get to that next week. The reality is this. You can spend everything. What's interesting about this story is a famine hits. You see the, the slow domino of the story here. That he spends everything and at the same time a famine hits and this dude is at the bottom of the barrel most literally. Spent everything and now everything around him is spent. He spent everything and everyone around him is like, don't want to help that dude. Not, I'm not sure about that guy. I don't know, he, is he worth helping out? And imagine he is at his wit's ends and he develops a great need. Because wild living leads to spending everything, leads to a great need. And that great need is often experienced and felt. That great need is understood inside of the ditch of life, per se. I think the younger son comes to a realization of his need because of the depth of need that he is in. Here's what Jesus says after he goes off and spends everything. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. The younger son had to find something to keep him alive. So he goes and becomes a pig caretaker. He's feeding pigs, which you and I look at and we're like, that's nasty. But that would have been undignified for him, not just nasty. But undignified in a Jewish context for a Jew to work with an unholy, unclean animal. So Jesus, another plot twist is like, let's enter into this world a little bit. Starts to get dirty, starts to get messy, and every religious leader is like, dude deserves it, man. That's just nasty. And what is he doing? And Oh, the pig, what's going on? He is at the bottom, not just of the barrel when it comes to need, but socially, this guy's a deep outcast now. Can't supply for himself, can't support for himself, can't even figure out how to feed himself, and then he has to work with pigs? It's nasty. And the reality is this. For some of us, that's where we've been. We've spent everything on wild living, resources are spent, and then we've hit the bottom of the barrel. And if you're here and that's your story, you're welcome here. If you're lost and that's your story, you're welcome here. If you're broken and that's your story, you're welcome here. If you've been in a season where that's your story and you have not walked through that, you're welcome here. Because here's what I believe, and this is what we're going to see here. The, the story takes another turn, another little plot twist, is that in your deepest need is when you find your greatest help. In your deepest need is when I think Jesus meets us in such powerful ways. Why? Well, let's keep reading the story here. Find yourself in the story. Verse 17. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. We'll stop there for a second. Here's what happens. In verse 17, it says right before that, he came to his senses. He came to his senses. 
Like all of a sudden, everything started to pop. He's like, I'm, this is bad. It's not good. I've wasted everything. There's a famine. I'm in deep need. He comes to his senses. But why does he come to his senses? One is, I think he understands the deep need he's in. But two, I believe this. Listen, eyes up here. I think the father provokes it a little bit. I wonder if he comes to his senses, not just because of his deep need, but because he's thinking about the father. And he's wondering about the father. And maybe he's wondering what the father's thinking of him. Or maybe he's wondering what he totally messed up by leaving and taking his inheritance and doing. And he's wondering, what in the world have I done? He comes to his senses. Why? Because the situation he is in now was not the situation he was in when he was around the father. It's relational. The relationship spirals into wild living. And all of a sudden, the father, I think, inside of this story, not maybe uh, not by not himself going after, but he provokes it in the son's mind to return. And I thought of a passage, and I thought this to be just so powerful. Romans 2, 4. This is what Paul writes. Or do you show contempt for riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Listen to that. I wonder, yes, the deep need. We talk about the deep need. He understands he's lost. He's working with pigs. He wants to eat what the pigs are eating. That's messy. That's disgusting. That's yucky. He's like, I could be doing better. But I think at the same time, he is drawn in by the Father's kindness. And in seeing that and coming to his senses, he takes a 180 and he says, I'm going to return. That's what Jesus invites us into is in your deepest need, think about your greatest help, which is the Father and his deep kindness towards you to drive us because God meets us in the low places. Now, he thinks, how many of my hired servant, or father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. It's a good, good comment, right? How I sit out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make my Life one, make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. This is what I would have you write down. You can be lost also in guilt and shame. Maybe you re resonate with the younger son and you are feeling guilt and shame about your life, about your journey, about what has happened, about your relationships, about your struggles. What I think is interesting is this. The younger son, he... He is provoked to return, and I think that the kindness of the father maybe is a part of that. His need is a part of that. He turns, and he's like, I'm going to go back. He's humbled to that. But what I think is interesting is this. As he is returning, as he's going back, he is processing to himself, how do I get right with the father? Have you been in that situation, right? You've been there where your parents caught you doing something, right? And you're like processing. You're like, how do I sweet talk my parents? How do I get back in the good? I'll do chores. I won't ask for another thing ever again. I'll do this, or I won't borrow the car ever again, right? All of that. We think about how to get back into the right. He comes up with a plan. 
any good son who's run away, comes up with a plan to come back home. You've got to explain what is going on. And he comes up with a plan as this. My hired, the hired servants of my father, they're not doing too bad. I wonder if my father will take me back in as a servant, not as a son. Here's the reality. In our guilt, in our shame, we like to solve it ourselves still. In our guilt and our shame, in the lostness of our guilt and our shame, we like to solve it ourselves and try to make up what we could never make up. Try to get to a place that we could never get. Our lostness can create even a legalism. Or if I just do all the right things, if I just have everything figured out, if I just check all the check marks and cross all the T's and dot all the I's enough times when I return, then I will be okay. And maybe some of you are here and you have returned per se. You are engaging God and you are engaging God with the premise of if I do all the right things, attend the church service, go to the group, serve enough, do good enough, then he will accept me again or he'll accept me for the first time. And the younger son Out of guilt and shame, I believe, and we all do this. This is not a knock on any person. I do this. I relate to God this way. We come up with a plan. If I present the plan, then I'll figure it out. And what's interesting is this, is he turns, but he doesn't fully grasp the Father's love at this point. He's starting to get it as he returns. He's starting to understand it, but he doesn't fully get it. And maybe you are here. Maybe you're like, I'm not wild living. I'm not completely lost. I'm not, I'm not sure if I would connect with the younger brother. No matter where you're at, listen, the question is valid. Do you understand the Father's love for you? No matter where you're returning from, no matter if, if you've been here for a long time, Matter if you say you have a relationship with Jesus or God, do you fully understand the Father's love or are you still trying to catch up with your own stuff and your own plan and play? Listen, that, that was my story. College was miserably me just coming up with plan after plan after plan after plan after plan. Like, well, if I read this book that my dad gave me, if I go to church enough, if I'm part of the young adult group, then we'll just be fine. And I was just as lost as someone living inside of wild living. We can come up with a plan and forget the Father's love and lean into that. Because here's the reality. This is the last point, and then we'll end. The Father, Father's grace covered the Son's guilt. The Son didn't have to come up with a plan. Because in verse 20, this is what we read. But while he, the younger son, the prodigal son, the son that ran off, the son that took the inheritance, the son that spent everything, the son that was living wildly, the son that was gone, they maybe thought was gone forever. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Tells me something. The father was waiting for him. Not like the servants came and said, yo, Dude took your inheritance. He's kind of like come up the road. What do you want to do about this? The father was longing for this. And he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Plot twist, again. They would have been like, again? Given his inheritance? Dude comes back. And he goes and hugs him. 
This would have been shocking in so many ways. First is this. Come on now. Father has compassion and mercy. Yeah, right. Come on, Jesus. In a real world, that doesn't happen, right? Takes it, and then he goes off. He takes it and goes off. What are you talking about? Secondly is this. The father in that culture didn't run. Didn't run with a sense of joy and urgency and welcomeness. Didn't run. It was, it was less than, it was undignified for him to run. And the fact that he ran was a sign of compassion and mercy and grace. The younger son was probably just as shocked as you and I are in the audience was. And what's interesting is he tries to make his point. The plan is still intact. Okay, the father came. Okay, now I got to process the plan with him. Verse 21. It's what the younger son says. If we want to go there on the slide. Oh, there it is. The son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It's interesting, right? Father embraces him with compassion and mercy, and yet the son's like, I got this plan. I got to figure it out. I got to process it out. This is what the father does. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on and put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for his son of mine was dead and was alive again. He was lost and was found. So they began to celebrate. The father could care less. He's like, he didn't even hear him. Son's like, dad, dad, I'll be a servant. Son, father's like, well, I'm too busy getting the party started, man. You didn't see what happened? All of a sudden, we come in with a plan. We forget God's grace and his embrace towards us. What he says is the son was dead. Now he's alive. Son was lost. Now he's found. Literally, the father decides to cover this son's nakedness, guilt, shame, and shortfalling with forgiveness and grace. He says, I want you to be my son. You've returned, and I have a love for you. This is what Tim Keller in his book, Prodigal God, says. There is no evil that the father's love cannot pardon and cover. There's no sin that is a match for his grace. I thought of it like this. And, and just be, you're, you get a lot of uh, parenting stories from me because that's just the season I'm in. I thought of it like this, okay? If you just think of a very physical, tangible expression of this, that maybe you can reflect upon, or maybe it's just helpful to understand this. Every night, me and Jess, we put our kids to bed. We have a semi-rhythm, right? It's a little bath time, you brush teeth, you use the restroom, you get changed, and then we'll read a book, and we'll put them into bed, we'll tuck them in, we'll pray, and then we'll leave the room. And as everything goes all right, they fall asleep and wake up in the morning, right? And I thought of that rhythm, and I thought in particular about the tucking in rhythm. Here's the reality. Every night with my son and daughter, I cover them with a blanket, with a hug, and with a prayer. And I cover them with that because I love them as their father. That day could have been horrible. We've had some horrible days. Day could have meant yelling and screaming and them disobeying and them kicking and fighting and them not sharing. And every night we try to do this rhythm. And what I thought of is this, that physical rhythm of me covering my son in blankets, putting his head on a pillow, giving him a hug and a kiss and praying over him is not dependent on how the day went. It's not dependent on if he was good or bad that he puts himself to bed or if daddy puts him to bed. Every night, no matter how the day went, I'm going to put you to bed as exactly what the father 
God of the universe wants us to hear. It's not dependent on your week. I want you to know I cover you in grace and mercy. I want you to return and I want you to be present in my home all the time. You're forgiven. You're graced. It's not dependent on how good you are today. It is all dependent on my love and my forgiveness to you through who? Jesus, my son. And the reality is this. The younger son returns to a shocking revelation that the father could care less about his plan because the father had his own plan. And the father's plan for us is this, is that we would say yes to Jesus because he says in grace and mercy when we were covered in stink and mess and sin and shortcoming. Is the father, is the father promoting wild living? No. But he accepts his son despite the wild living. The difference there, it's not like, a boy, son, you go, you went, you figured out how to be a man out there. He said, quick, the son has returned because the son was in deep need and then saw the kindness of the father and he ran to him. And some of us are there. Some of us are there where we need to run into the father because the father has sent his one and only son, Jesus, to do for you and I what we could not do for ourselves. What does this mean? As the worship team comes up real quickly, Real quickly, as the worship team comes up, I would say this. First thing is this. For some of us, it means this. Come home to the Father. For some of us, we're lost and we resonate with the younger son. Next week, we'll talk about the older son, and some of us might resonate with that. Either way, come home to the Father. The Father is not waiting there to glare at you, to give you the stink eye, He's waiting there to shower compassion and mercy, <coughs> to shower grace upon you. Well, I don't know, Pastor Joel, if this and that, and what about this and that that I've done? And the Father wants you. His grace is enough. It is no match for your history and your sin and your shame. Why? Because the perfect Savior of the world God's son came into this earth, lived the perfect life you and I could not live, died the death that we deserved, rose again so that you and I could have life and exchange places with him so that we could live in the father's house as a son or daughter. How we say here is say yes to Jesus. Coming home to the father is as simple as saying yes to Jesus, the son who paid the price so that you could be a son or daughter in his home. Secondly is this, <clears throat> maybe some of us have come home to the Father, or maybe we've had visits to the Father. I would say it this way, choose connectivity, not productivity. I got that from a podcast, and it sounds real businessy. It is, but I thought it was profound. I don't know how many of you have seen this uh, story. It's called You Are Special by Max Lucado. Short and simple side of it, read it to your kids. It's a kid's story. It's great. Basically, there's a, a city of wooden people, Wemmicks they're called. If they do really good things, they're really talented, they get gold stars. If they are pretty lousy, pretty lame, they do not so good stuff, they get gray dots. There's a Wemmick that lives in the village, Punchinello. He can't do anything right. Just walking outside, he gets gray dots. Resonate at all? Gets gray dots and he's walking around and then he sees this Wemmick that doesn't have anything. No stars, no dots. He's like, what is it with you? What's different about you? 
So you got to meet the woodcarver, Eli. So Machinella gets the courage up. He goes up to meet Eli. Eli speaks truth, identity, love into him. You are mine. I've created you. Can't let them determine who you are to me. But then he leaves Punchinello with this. Because Punchinello's like, what do I do next? How do I figure this out? Where do I go from here? This is what Eli says. For now, come to see me every day and let me remind you how much I care. Some of you, it's not the first time going back to the Father's house. Some of you need to continue running into the Father's house right now because you are questioning if someone cares. You're questioning if you're good enough face for you. I love you. Run into me. That's all I'm asking you to do. Then lastly is this, and this is a fun one, guys. This should get our blood moving. This should get us fired up. We not only come home to the Father, we choose connectivity, not productivity, but we celebrate church. We celebrate Luke 15, 7, this is what Jesus says in an earlier story. I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. We celebrate when someone who is lost is found. We need to be a church that is not self-consumed with how things are going in the programs and events. We need to be consumed with celebrating when someone finds who Jesus is for their life and returns home. This should be a place of celebration. But here's the key part. If you've said yes to Jesus, before we can celebrate, we need to care. We need to care about the lost and those who don't know Jesus. Celebration comes out of us caring and pointing people to Jesus. I was struck upon this quote from Just Mercy this weekend. Each of us is more than the worst thing we have done. There are people out there who are lost. We need to care for the lost no matter who they are, where they're from, what's going on because Jesus invites us all in. And so, Father, we come to you and we just want to sing this last song to you as an echo of our hearts, as a way to celebrate you and what you have invited us into. Father, with your grace and mercy, would you lead us in this time?